And then the rest of us that are staying in here, uh, if you're able to track down a Bible, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we have Bibles here, so if you're grabbing one out of that chair rack, you're going to find 1 Timothy chapter 3 on page 1024, 1024, 1024. I'm going to read verses 1 to 15, and then we're going to pray, and uh, we'll get to work. All right, 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1, reads like this. Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect. Not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Jesus Christ. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is, which is the church of the living God the pillar and foundation of truth. Let's pray. Lord, as we've opened your word together and read from it, we're praying that by your spirit, through your word, you would speak to us. We pray for the leadership of our church, and we ask God that you would give us a clear and compelling vision to help us know how to organize and how to design systems and structures that reflect your pattern given here in scripture. We pray this in your name. Amen. We're looking at our church, and we're trying to think through who we are and how we operate and the unique calling that we have as Park City Church, knowing that there are a lot of churches in town and knowing that there are a lot of different ways in which to do church. What is the unique calling that God has placed on us? And so we've been going through this series and looking at different aspects of life together, and we come now to the section of our series that I'm labeling infrastructure, meaning kind of you pull back the curtains and you go, okay, well, how, how does this actually work? What are some of the things that are going on behind the scenes? And you might think, well, that's boring. Like, I don't really care. I'm just coming to church here. Why do I need to know what goes on behind the curtains? Um, and it made me think about this little skate shop in Rockford called The Station. Uh, if you guys know my story, I am a skateboarder. I mean, I'm 41 years old now, so it looks very different than when I was 12. But I've been skateboarding my whole life. And, and still skateboarding to this day, uh, 
which makes my wife and my neighbors nervous because I'll take my dog on a skate down the hill and we're flying and everyone's like, he's going to die. And I feel that too sometimes. Like, I'm, this goes poorly. I'm going to be hurting. But um, anyways, there was a skate shop in Rockford called The Station. And I remember as a, as a teenager, we would go in there. And this was back in the mid-90s. And so we didn't have, you know, malls and zoomies and stuff like that. But we had this one local skate shop and we would go there and we would just hang out. Like my brother, B-Rad back here, and my cousins, we would just go to the skate shop and we would just hang out there because we loved skateboarding and we, we didn't have, you know, cell phones with the internet on it or anything like that. So we'd just go there and we'd hang out. And I remember thinking uh, about how much I cared about that shop, where I would start to actually get curious and go, how does this work exactly? Like, how do, how do you work with vendors? And how do, what is that like to have these different reps that come in and sell gear and all these different things? And the reason why I started to care not just about the shop itself, but its success was because I cared deeply about skateboarding and about, you know, the, the people who were, who were leading the shop. And I bring that out to say, when we think about the church, I don't just want people coming in here, here who frequent the church, who come here and go, I don't really care about that stuff. I don't really care about whether or not this is successful or well-designed. I'm, I'm hoping that all of us, as we move into greater and greater degrees of maturity, we'll come to see, I don't just want to go to Park City Church. I want to understand that it is well-designed and that it is a sustainable thing, that there is a clear plan behind this stuff to see that it is successful to the glory of God. And so that's what we're doing right now. We're looking behind the curtain to see the infrastructure of the church. And what we find here in 1 Timothy, Timothy chapter 3 is church leadership according to the Bible. We're going to see a couple terms here. They're, they're different, and I'm going to try to explain what they are. But we're going to see these two categories of leaders as, as, as indicated by the New Testament. And uh, what we're going to do then is we're going to ask and answer three questions. Who are they? What do they do? And why does it matter? Who are they? What do they do? Why does it matter? So let's get to work. Who are they? Well, if you glance at the heading in the NIV, it says qualifications for overseers and deacons. Those are the two titles. I'm actually going to use a different first word. I'm going to use the word elder because that's the more common one in the New Testament. And you can see that in, if you look at the parallel text of Titus, Titus is another letter written by the same dude to a, to a different individual, and he says, I've got some work for you to do. The reason why I sent you there is so that you might finish this work, appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And then he gives the same qualifications over in that other book, but he's saying elders. They're the same, same group of people, overseers, elders, they're used interchangeably throughout the New Testament. So you've got this group called elders, and then you've got another group called deacons, and both of these terms are weird, right? I remember I was having a conversation with somebody from our church, and they say, every time you say the word elder, I imagine a group of seniorly people sitting around having coffee and talking about church. And it's not wrong. I mean, in fact, that's where the term came from, the Jewish faith of the uh, seniors in the tribes who are leaders of those different tribes. But... Um, what, who are the elders and the overseers? Who, who, who are these people? And then deacons, that's the, the real weird one, right? Like, what does that mean? Well, deacons, that's a funny word. It's actually just the word servant. But it comes to mean a very specific kind of servant here. Because every Christian is meant to, to serve 
in various ways, but here we have a group that are given over to the task of serving the church. So my contention would be, we need to use these biblical terms to help us understand these different structures of leadership. There are a lot of different ways to do church. There are a lot of different ways to kind of design the infrastructure of church leadership. A lot of it is borrowing from kind of uh, popular places like the education realm of, you know, a, a school board and how that works, or we borrow from corporations and we go, how do people lead in corporations? And can we design the church structure like that? And, and you know, sometimes we borrow from small businesses and all of that is fair game and there's wisdom in all those different places. But what I want to say is I think it's important as a church that we would look to the scriptures and look at the categories there and do the best job that we possibly can of designing the leadership structures accordingly. So we have here these ideas of elders and deacons, and, and what I'm trying to, to do is lead our church toward embracing these biblical models of leadership. So who are they? Well, let me give you a few different things from the text. These are not chronological. I'm just uh, kind of cherry-picking here. But first off, they are people of faith. That's a, that feels like a given, right? Like, oh, of course, but if we don't say it, it is possible that you put people in leadership positions because of their giftedness, because of their leadership affinities, instead of recognizing that the main thing is you want somebody who is a spiritual leader, therefore they have to be spiritual. So you want people who are people of faith. Look at verse 6. The elder must not be a recent convert. But what's implied there is he is a convert. He is somebody who has converted to Christianity, who has decided to follow Christ, and in this case is saying there needs to be a length of time there that this person exhibits their faith in Christ, but assumed is they follow Christ. They are, they are individuals who have followed Christ. Look down at verse 9 of the deacons. It says they must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. Deacons need to be people who hold to the essential teaching of Christianity, and that has to be demonstrable that they have to be the people who are holding to these things with a clear conscience. So simply put, spiritual leaders must be spiritual people. And to overlook that would be tragic. And it happens, by the way. There are instances in church history where there are pastors who are not believers in Christ. And I, I can't, my mind uh, is not working right now to remind me of the particulars, but I know that there are some who actually became Christians under their own ministry. They weren't Christians and they're doing something and they're like, oh man, uh, Jack Miller is one. Somebody who steps into ministry and then under their own ministry becomes a believer. Well, we'd be better off if we said, well, let's make sure that happens beforehand. Spiritual leaders need to be spiritual people. They need to be people of faith. That's bare minimum, I think, and, and quite obvious. The second thing when we ask the question, who, who are they? Well, they are official leaders in the church. And I'm underlining the word here, official. And I, I'm saying that because as you look at chapter 3, what you'll notice is, one, they have titles, meaning they have a, a title, they're uh, elders or overseers, and they're deacons, but they, they have a designation. So look at verse 1. It says, um, here's a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. That's chapter 3, verse 1. And so it's saying there's somebody who's desiring to be in this position. That's a good thing. That's a noble thing. But uh, to be that, they'd have to meet all these requirements and then step into this official capacity. 
Look at verse 8. This is talking about the deacons. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect. So they have a title. The title indicates that this is an official position within the church. There are also requirements, which is the whole point of this chapter, to say that there are things, there's a bar that needs to be met. If somebody is to pursue this, that's great, but if somebody is to be appointed to this, they would have to meet those different requirements, meaning this is an official thing. This is something that people move toward and are appointed to. There's also a process. You don't want to put people in leadership without using patience and intentionality. I'll show it to you in a couple different places, but basically what I'm saying is the process shows that there should be a probationary period and then in, in a public installation. Look at verse 10. This is talking about the deacons, and it says, they must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. They must first be tested, and then if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In other words, if somebody's going to move into that office of being a deacon or a deaconess, there has to be a time period that you allow examination, a testing period where you're looking at that individual and you're comparing their way of life to the requirements given here in the scriptures, and you're, you're examining, and then after that period of time, then you're able to say, okay, well, if there's nothing against them, then we're going to install you in this official capacity as, as a deacon. Um, but there's a, time, there's a timeline on there then. And so as a church, what we have done is we have developed a process for elder and training, and we walk people through a curriculum, and it's an extensive one to make sure that, that there's a good fit. And uh, we recognize the importance of this process, and so we take it very seriously. And then uh, after somebody kind of checks all the boxes in that direction, they're moving in that direction, we recognize it's a good fit theologically, philosophy of ministry, relationally. We have to like each other. We have to trust each other enough that we can disagree in a hearty manner. There's only a few people, by the way, that I allow that sort of interaction with. Like, Phil and Bruce can tell me, dude, you're wrong. I don't hear that well from most people, but there are a couple individuals that I respect them enough that when they say that, I sit up and I go, okay. Or, or they can tell me, that's a bad idea. And there's, again, there's not a lot of people that I love to hear that from, but from them, I respect them. So when we're looking at elders, we're looking at, do they, do they meet all these biblical requirements, and do they, are we going to be a good fit together? We need to be able to graciously disagree with one another and, and you know, push back on each other and sharpen one another. Uh, we're looking at all that stuff, but then what we do is, if somebody meets those requirements, then we put them in a, in a nominated position. This is somebody who's nominated for eldership. Phil was that for maybe four to six months a couple years ago, where we said, okay, this person would be a great fit, but we're not going to rush the process. We're going to spend time here because we recognize how important this is. Here's the second example from the scriptures. It's not in our passage, but if you glance over in chapter 5, you see the same idea reiterated. Paul is telling Timothy, you have to be careful here. You have to have a process here. There, there needs to be intentionality here. You get to chapter 5, and he, he rehearses it, and he says, don't be hasty with this. And he says, he calls it laying on of hands. That was how they described the public installation. It would be praying over somebody, physically laying your hands on them, designating them to that position. Paul says, don't do that hastily. Don't hastily lay hands on somebody and appoint them to leadership, because if you do that and it's not a good fit, 
good luck, right? Larry Osborne, one of my favorite authors on this subject, he says, once, once you get somebody in that position, it'll take, a, it'll take an act of God to get them out. So if you do it wrong, you're going to suffer. So he says, be, be very careful here. The Bible says, don't be hasty. Here's the reason why. If you glance down at verse 24 of chapter 5, it says, the sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. There are some people that aren't a good fit. You're going to see it on their resume. It's obvious, like, oh, this is not going to work out. It's going to be very obvious. The sins of others, you're not going to know. I did a retreat this week. I took some time away to pray and reflect. And uh, just working through some stuff with the Lord and making sure, you know, I'm following his leadership. And here's what's interesting. This is year seven of my leadership of our congregation. I'm learning things about myself now that are unhealthy, that I didn't know, but they're coming up and they're coming out and I'm realizing, oh man, seven years in, I'm still figuring this stuff out. So what does that mean for appointing anyone to leadership? It means, well, we, we better not rush that process because there are going to be things that are obvious on the front end that we can be aware of that maybe would indicate this is not a great fit, but there are going to be things that you find out down the line and you go, okay, that was a hidden thing. We didn't expect that. But you don't want to rush the process and create those problems immediately. You need to be slow and deliberate with it. So the, the process indicates that this is an official thing. There's a probationary period, and then there's a public installation of these individuals. Okay? So who are they? They are um, official leaders in the church, and they are also people of character. If you look at the lists here, here's what's interesting about it. If you go, okay, what is this mainly about? What, so we're looking at spiritual leaders. What, what is the main requirement for somebody to step into spiritual leadership? It is heavily weighted, primarily weighted toward character. It's mainly about being people of character. In fact, most of the things that we find here, we actually expect of every believer. D.A. Carson, one of the professors at the school that I attended, he put it like this. He said, the list is remarkable, talking about the list of elder requirements, the list is remarkable for being unremarkable. With only a couple of exceptions, all the qualifications listed here are elsewhere in the New Testament demanded of all Christians. What this means then is that the Christian leader, the elder here, must exemplify in his own life the virtues and graces that are demanded of all the people of God. Christian leaders need to be people of exemplary character. They need to be people who, dis- who display Christ-likeness in real time. And the, one of the reasons why is le- leadership mainly is leading by example. And Carson said this as well. He said, most of the lessons in discipleship, they're caught, not taught. You see it, and then you become like it. So you need leaders that you can look at and go, okay, this person is, is like Christ. That's where we're going as a church. All right, let's look at a few of the particulars here. We'll just blast through the list, but I want you to see that I'm not making this up, but that is actually there in the text. Notice in verses 2 and 3, all of the emphasis on character. Now, the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, all these different requirements indicating 
people of character. And we could double-click on any of, them, any of these, but this is really an overview for us for the entire church to be aware of. There are other places where I've taught on these things in more detail. But look at verse 8. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. Glance down at verses 11 and 12. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife. So what this is saying is spiritual leadership demands a high level of character. When you're looking at somebody for these different positions, you need to be evaluating them based on character qualities, not just skills, not just aptitude, not just ability to lead. You want to make sure that these individuals are spiritual leaders who have exemplary character. There's a Greek philosopher named Heraclitus, and he said he was attributed with saying this. This used to be something we would say in the political realm, too. But there's a saying that goes like this, character is destiny. Have you heard that before? Character is destiny, meaning who you are will ultimately produce an outcome. Who you are will result in where you're going. And we, we used to actually say that of political candidates. Like we want somebody of character because we recognize that who they are will, will influence where we are going as a nation. So character is destiny. Um, when we think about spiritual leadership, it's important to recognize that the people who hold offices within the church will ultimately determine what kind of church we become. Uh, this will probably be totally wrong because I couldn't find it this morning, but I remember hearing it, and maybe it's just me making it up. Charles Simeon is one of the dudes that I really, really respect. I, I did a lot of my preaching training in an organization called the Simeon Trust, uh, he was a preacher in London for 50 years in one location. It didn't start out well, though. His people hated his guts. They locked him out of the church. And then when he got into the church, they actually had, like, little things on the, on the pews that they could lock, and they locked all the pews. So even if people wanted to come, they couldn't sit in the chairs. They sat in the aisles. But he felt called to this ministry, and he just, in, he just stuck it out. He's like, you know what? I'm going to be here longer than them. Like, that was his pastoral strategy. He's like, I'm going, to be, I'm going to be gentle and kind and enduring. And sure enough, he was there for 50 years, and he won over the congregation. But he had a mentor. This is the part I'm not sure if it's accurate or not, so take it with a grain of salt. But I believe he had a mentor who said to him, Charles, the destiny of this congregation, I'm using different language now, but he's saying what this congregation will become ultimately is affected by the kind of leaders that are in here. And I think Charles Simeon took that to heart, and I think he lived that out very beautifully. And he was very careful in the way that he interacted, even with his, with his detractors. But the point is, if we're going to have a healthy church, it's important that we would have healthy spiritual leadership. We want people of character to be the ones who are occupying these offices. So who are they? They are individuals who are official leaders within the church, who have gone through a process that indicate that they are fit for the task and they are people of exemplary character. Secondly, what do they do? We've been talking a lot about elders and deacons, but what exactly do they do? And I'm going to give you, we'll go one at a time. I'll do elders first, then deacons. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you four things that elders do and then one main thing that deacons do, okay? 
Elders do this, they teach. Look at verse six, I'm sorry, verse two. Halfway through verse two, it says, they have to be able to teach. That's one of the only qualifications that is skill-based. They have to be able to teach, why? Because the overseers are the ones who are teaching the things of God. The expectation is that a overseer would be the place that you go to hear about God and what God is like and what God demands. And this has always been the case, even in the Old Testament times, this was the function of the priesthood. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 7, it, it reads like this, the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty and people seek instruction from his mouth. So there's always been a category of leadership within the people of God where you go, if I want to know about God, I go to them. And, and when that person is doing what they're supposed to do, they're supposed to be preserving the knowledge of God and people are supposed to pursue them seeking instruction from their mouth. So elders need to be able to teach. They have to be able to teach the things of God. So, so the question is, where can I go to learn about God? And one of the answers you ought to be able to, to publish is, I go to the elders of the church to learn about God. Our elders, by the way, as I think about them, uh, they have different teaching capacities. It's, we're not saying everyone has to come up here, do what I'm doing today, but every elder has to be capable of this thing. So Don Williams does teaching in discipleship format, meaning he has for years done groups going through Navigators Live 2-6 stuff where he teaches people basic Christianity. And he's been doing that over and over again. We can't stop him. Uh, even if we wanted to, he wouldn't stop. But he does discipleship. Phil, when I first met him, was writing an uh, online theological journal. And, you know, lawyer by trade, associate pastor, has done all these different things. But his, his aptitude is for teaching theology. And he's written a, a systematic theological devotional that we, that we parked on our website. But he teaches in, in that way classes. He's developing curriculum for our church. Um, he teaches in, in, in that way. Bruce, I think about Bruce and his counseling ministry, and I think about Bruce's teaching the Word of God in one-to-one in -one settings where he's helping people apply the wisdom of Scripture to real-life situations. And I look at our team, and I, and I think how beautiful it is that God has given us a diversity of giftedness in our elders. So elders are to teach, first and foremost. Secondly, they're to lead. And you see that in, in the name itself, whoever aspires to be an overseer, which is a functional title, to give oversight, uh, elders are to do that. They, they are overseers. They supervise the work of the church. They manage. We see that in verses 4 and 5. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he care for God's church? It's saying you have to be willing to administrate and manage, and that has to show up in real time. You, your, your household would be a good place to examine to see, are you capable of doing this? And uh, by the way, what a brilliant thing God has done for us. He says, look in the home. And if you think about parenting, that's a part of this feature, you go, okay, if you want to know who's going to be good at leading a church, look at their kids. Okay, a lot of us have kids, and I remember how arrogant I was when I first had a kid. I knew exactly what I was going to do, right? And then the kid shows up, and you go, I think we might need to revise the plan a little bit, 
Like what I thought would happen is not exactly how this works. And every kid is different, by the way. So you can't just have like a one size fits all, like I'm always going to do this as dad. No, you have to be willing to look at the particular needs of the individual child to be able to lead them well. Now, if we're looking at candidates for leadership and we look in the home, all of a sudden we're going to have we're going to have ample opportunity to really evaluate, is this person a good fit for leading God's church? They have to be leaders. Leaders have to make hard decisions. I was reading a book this week, and this really stood out to me. It said, um, leadership is about making decisions, and the word itself, decide, means to cut off. Like, it means to look at all your options and to choose. And when you choose, you're saying, out of all these things we could do, this is what we are doing. But that means there's a lot of stuff we're not doing. That's hard to do. One, one of the guys uh, that I like to read his, his stuff, he says, if, if you want people to like you, don't be a leader. Sell ice cream, right? <laughs> Le- leadership is not something that you're like, yeah, everyone just loves when you make decisions. No, leadership is that hard assignment of saying, somebody's got to choose, I guess it's me. And we're going to cut off all these other opportunities because we're going to say, this is what we're doing. And people don't like that, by the way. So elders have to lead, and uh, that's a hard thing to do. Thirdly, elders have to shepherd. And um, that's the main metaphor that's used in the New Testament for, for these leaders. It's the main metaphor of here's what it looks like. There's overlap, by the way, because when you shepherd, you lead, you care for, you, um, you, do, you teach, you do all these different things. But... Um, Shepherding is, is what we're called to do, and we see that in verse 5 where it's talking about in the household, you're caring for the people under you. You're caring for God's church. So shepherding involves feeding and leading and defending um, from wolves, defending from within the flock. As you see in Ezekiel 34, you find that there are selfish individuals who do harm to the flock, and shepherds have to be willing to step in and defend uh, we're familiar with the shepherd leaving the 99 to go after the one. Part of the shepherding task is to pay attention and when people stray to go after them. It, it involves all these different things. So leaders are to shepherd. Finally, they're to pray. I think it'd be a huge omission to leave that out. It's not in the list itself, but I do think it's a major factor of spiritual leadership. Elders are to be praying for the people of God. Um, I see that in uh, Acts chapter 6. I think, that's a, I think that's the introduction to some of these uh, categories here, where there, were, there was a situation in the early church. There were some widows who were being overlooked for the distribution of food, and they had to figure out, what do we do here? And so the, the leader said, well, we're gonna prior, we have to prioritize what we're called to. So what did they do? They gave themselves over to the ministry of the word and prayer. But they said, we're not going to be negligent of our widows So what we're going to do is we're going to assign spirit-filled individuals to lead, to take care of that issue. And they appointed several to that assignment, and I believe that's kind of the seed form of where we got to elders and deacons and the relationship between the two. But what you notice in Acts 6 is spiritual leaders at the highest level are saying, we have to prioritize the ministry of the word and prayer. We have to pray. And so as as an elder team, we've talked about that, the importance of our meetings, not just being business meetings, but being shepherding meetings where we sit down, we, we look at our directory, we pray over you guys. I pull a chair out here, and I sit here, and because you guys have unofficial assigned seats, I just sit here with an empty sanctuary, and I go, 
I'm praying for Dwight and Jenny. They're always over here. So if I look in this direction, I've got Dwight and Jenny and Suzanne and Jeff. And I look over here, and I'm praying for you guys. And I just keep working my way through. And then I'm like, oh, sure enough, you guys always sit in the same places. So it's coming to mind, and I'm praying for you. And I'm praying for the things that you guys are going through. But that's a part of leadership. It's a part of leadership to recognize we have to pray over the people that God has given to us, that has been entrusted to us. So elders do all those different things. All right, now deacons, the word itself is the word servant. So what, what do deacons do? Well, they serve. And that word servant is used all over the New Testament, not in this specific capacity. Every Christian is supposed to serve. Um, but now we get this new, this new position, and I would put it like this, deacons are the leading servants. Deacons are the ones who are willing to, to do what is necessary to make sure that the church is healthy and functioning and meeting the needs of its congregants. They do all kinds of different things. Um, it's interesting to look at church history and the different ways that this has been applied. Uh, I've had conversations with a lot of different people with scholars on this topic. I've sat down with Mickey Klink and Roscoe here, and we've kind of talked through, okay, uh, you know, all these different things. There's a guy, John Collins, that's written extensively on that word and on this idea, and, and I've learned from all these different places, but, but what, what I have come to the conclusion of is deacons are official servants within the church. You've got elders. You've got de- if you're looking at the hierarchical structure, the organizational chart, you go, okay, you've got your leading leaders and the elders, and then you've got your servants. You've got all your uh, leading servants that are leading these different things. And, and again, as we see th- through the process here and the requirements, these, these are official positions. These are people who are appointed to a task. And um, what we're doing presently is we're trying to develop that process, and we've got most of it done, but then we're trying to roll it out. This is, we, we do not officially have deacons right now, but it's something that we're moving forward in because we recognize how important it is. We need to know who is in charge of what. We need to know that these people have been given to their assignment and that they are capable of doing it. We need to know that they follow in the leadership of the Lord. Remember, he did the, one of his last teachings was he took a towel, wrapped it around his waist, and washed feet. He served. That word shows up in that passage. He served. And his followers were like, this is inappropriate. This is the lowest job here. You can't do this. You're our leader. But he said, what I'm doing for you, this is an example. You do likewise. You go and do the same thing. Our servants need to be people with that sort of posture that say, we are going to do what is necessary for the good of our church. All right, why does this matter? Let's look at verses 14 and 15. This is the last point here. Why does this matter? Um, Paul writes like this. He says, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. He says, I wish I could be with you guys and we could do a seminar on this. I wish I could be face-to-face with you to, to talk through some of these different things. But if I continue to be prevented from that opportunity, if I'm delayed, I'm writing this so that you understand how important it is. I'm writing these instructions. What instructions? The list. It says, I'm writing the qualifications for your spiritual leaders so that if I'm delayed, you know how to conduct yourselves in God's household. 
So he's giving us specific teaching on the importance of organizing the church in this way. He's praying for and laboring toward and writing in order that the church would have an orderliness to it, that it would have a clear leadership structure that reflects the heart of God. And what's the opposite? What, what would happen if this doesn't come true? Misconduct. I'm writing so that you would conduct yourselves in a, in a manner worthy of God's household, but what happens if we don't do this? It's misconduct. It's, it's chaos. It's, it's a church without leadership, and that, that is a problem. So the reason why this matters is because the way in which you, you design these structures affects everything. Uh, Greg Allison, a professor at uh, Southern Seminary in Louisville, he's written uh, a big book on ecclesiology, the study of the church. He's written on elders and deacons. He has served as a pastor, and, uh, and uh, he is an elder currently at his church there, and he's written on these different subjects. This is his little book, his little booklet on deacons, and it's an excellent read. But he makes the point, as a seminary professor, he says, this stuff is not the stuff that is selling books. He says, we're not doing a good job training our people here. He writes like this. He says, a deficient ecclesiology, a deficient understanding of the church is prevalent today in both the local church and the academy. Many pastors ground their leadership model in power and practicality, while many pastors in training have a lack of interest in the governance of the church. He says, this isn't even high priority for anybody. But he argues, and I totally agree, the leadership, the governing structure of a church is essential to the health of the church. And um, it's not a popular thing. It's not something that all of us kind of get out of bed in the morning and go, you know what, I want to figure out how the church should be governed. Like you didn't show up today thinking this is super important to me. But what I'm saying is it really does matter for the health of our church. And I'm trying to pull back the curtain so you can see the infrastructure of our church and understand this is not something that we're doing willy-nilly, we're not doing this just kind of whimsically, like, oh, we'll just figure it out. But we're trying to do this in a very purposeful way. Um, it will take time. Uh, so as we come to a close here, some of you might be saying, okay, dude, well, I'm hearing you, and let's just get on with it, right? Like, let's just do this, okay? I, I agree with you. I might have some follow-up questions on particularities, but in, in general, let's just do this, right? And one of the things I would say is, it's going to take time. And I'll read this to you real quick. This is uh, Allison again, he says. He was talking about his first church. And he talked about how he was moving his church from a former model of leadership to the one that I've described today. And he said, it took time. He said, um, it took Henson Church, that's where he was serving, four years to make the transition. And I would not have attempted to do it in any less time. Perhaps after a couple years of considering it, we could have forced a vote, maybe even winning. What would have changed, however, would have been the structure, not the people's heart and the church's culture. And it is the, people's, and, it is the people and the culture that must undergird and precede any polity change. And, and I think there's some wisdom there. We're in year seven. We became Park City Church in 2021, and that was the first instance where we, we began to kind of redesign the church leadership structure at our, at our church, and it has taken time, and some of you have heard me talk on this multiple times, and you're like, okay, well, let's just do it. And uh, this week, I was wrestling with, how do I describe what it's like to lead Park City Church? And here's the analogy that I came up with. Um, 
we are not, strictly speaking, a church plant, meaning a startup church. A startup church, what you do is you pray, you feel called to it, you design it, you come up with your plan, and it's a blueprint, and you lay that out, and you go, guys, we're moving in this direction. Here's our leadership structure. We're starting out with it. We are not that, because we started as a satellite campus, and we had, uh, we had some limitations on account of that. We're also not an established church changing over to it. And a, an established church is like, a, like you live in a house, and you're like, I don't like the kitchen. I think we should change the kitchen. Let's renovate the kitchen. You're living in the house, and you're like, well, what are we going to do? Okay, here's, here's how our kitchen happened, here's what we want. And you draw it up, and you make it happen. And that change, by the way, is hard. Those of you that have done renovations and lived in it, you know that's a hard thing. That's also not us. We're not going from, we're established, and we got this thing figured out. We're just switching over now. We're more like, you know when you go in a business, and they're open, but they're under construction, and there's like, you know, tarps and all this stuff that's hanging from the ceilings and there's construction dust everywhere and things are going on. And you're like, I don't know if this is even safe, right? That's Park City Church. You come in here and we're, we're open for business, but there's a lot going on and it's kind of messy. And here's what's, I love this about you guys, but it's also hard. You guys are all like, sign me up, I'm in. So you come to church with your toolkit and your stuff, and you're like, it's under construction. I'm going to go ahead and start working over here, which is, you know, ambitious and great and wonderful, and I love that we have just high-capacity people, but at the same time, we're really trying to get to that point where we can say, let's make sure we've got our blueprint in front of us so we're not just building haphazardly all these different things, but let's make sure that we've got a plan in place, and then everyone can step in and contribute in significant ways. So again, as you're kind of listening to me, and maybe you're frustrated, and you're like, dude, just get on with it. Let's get our, you know, the elder process in place. Let's get our deacon and training stuff going. Let's get all this stuff rolled out. Just uh, what I'm trying to say is we're working on it, and, and I appreciate your patience, but we really do want to do this in a way that is God-honoring, and I hope that, uh, that that's also important to you. So again, let's look once more at our text. The reason why this matters is because this is God's church. We're not going to do this haphazardly. We have to do this with intentionality, and care. He says, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. That's us, guys. The church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. This matters because it matters to God. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us Lord, help us to build leadership structures that reflect your heart. Help us to be careful to do this well, not just looking to the business sector or the education sector or other leadership realms, but help us to look to your holy scriptures and help us to design our process and our patterns in a way that reflect what you have given us. And Lord, we do pray for a healthy church. We pray for healthy leadership. And we pray that the leadership would, um, would be able to lead us where you want to take us, Lord. And at the end of the day, that is enough. Um, so help us to surrender to your perfect plan and help us to discern what that is and then help us collectively to walk by faith in it. We pray in your name. Amen.